preface part b of the sikh religion this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the sikh religion its gurus sacred writings and authors by Max Arthur McAuliffe Volume 1 Preface Part B Notwithstanding these tributes to the accuracy of my work, to its utility and to my desire to do justice to the sacred writings of the Sikhs, some may possibly be found among them who will differ from the versions I have given. I have met so-called Gyanis who could perform tours de force with their sacred work and give different interpretations for all of almost every line of it. My Sikh readers may rest assured that in this work all rational interpretations have been considered and only those selected which seem most suitable to the context and most in harmony with Sikh doctrines. When second and third interpretations seemed possible, they have been appended in the notes. When my translation was thus completed and approved of by the most learned Sikh priests and scholars, I found that an account of the Sikh gurus, saints and authors was absolutely necessary and indeed of equal, if not greater, importance than even a correct interpretation of their writings. The late illustrious scholar Professor Max Muller, who had Indian literature so greatly at heart, expressed in his latest work, Old Lang Syne, his regret that the world knew so little of the Sikh reformers. He wrote, It is a pity that we possess so little information about the original Sikh reformers. Their sacred book, the Granth Sahib, exists. Nay, it has even been translated into English by the late Dr. Trump. But it turns out now that Dr. Trump was by no means a trustworthy translator. The language of the Granth is generally called Old Punjabi and it was supposed that a scholar who knew modern Punjabi might easily learn to understand the language as it was 400 years ago. But this is not the case. The language of the Granth Sahib is full of local dialectic varieties and forgotten idioms so much so that it has been said to be without any grammar at all. Mr. McAuliffe, who has spent many years among the Sikhs and has, with the help of their priests, paid much attention to their Grant Sahib, has given us some most interesting and beautiful specimens of their poetry, which form part of their sacred book. On perusing the current lives and accounts of the Gurus, 
I found them overladen with puerile heterodox or repulsive details, and it required further years of study and consultation with learned Sikhs to complete biographies of the founders of their religion, which were not inconsistent with their sacred writings. The orthodox Sikhs who have read the lives of their gurus in the voluminous Hindi work entitled Suraj Prakash and in the current Punjabi works called Janamsakis will understand and perhaps be grateful to me for the manner in which I have presented their religion according to the desires and teachings of their gurus. To prevent misconception it ought perhaps to be here stated that this work is intended to be an exact presentation of the teaching of the Sikh gurus and orthodox writers as contained in their sacred books and is by no means put forth as a portrayal of the debased superstitions and heterodox social customs of Sikhs who have been led astray from their faith by external influences. It must also be stated that the intention of the author has been in fulfilment of his promise to the Sikhs to write this work from an orthodox Sikh point of view, without any criticism or expression of opinion of his own. Accordingly, miracles, which are accepted by many Sikhs, will be found reverently described in this work. A very important question has arisen among the Sikhs as to how my translation of their sacred writings should be presented. The Granth Sahib, as already stated, is to them the embodiment of their Gurus, who are regarded as only one person, the light of the first Guru's soul, having been transmitted to each of his successors in turn. The line of the Gurus closed with the tenth, Guru Gobind Singh. He ordered that the Granth should be to his Sikhs as the living Gurus. Accordingly, the Granth Sahib is kept in silken coverlets and when it is removed from place to place is taken on a small couch by Sikhs of good repute. Many of my old orthodox Sikh friends feared that if my translation were printed in the order of the original, it would not receive the same respect and attention in foreign countries as in India, and they accordingly desired that it should be printed in some other form. This desire of the most holy and respected Sikhs is a great relief to me, for it makes it competent to intersperse many of the sacred hymns in the lives of the Gurus and thus present my work as much as possible in narrative form, which it is hoped will be more acceptable not only to European but even to Sikh readers themselves. Competent Sikhs have also advised me that when the Guru's instructions on various occasions is on the same subject and of the same tenor, it needs to be given only once. For instance, in the Granth Sahib there are four hymns beginning with the words in the first watch of night, my merchant friend. Two of these hymns are by Guru Nanak, the third by Guru Ramdas, and the fourth by Guru Arjan. 
The hymns begin in the same manner, are of the same purport, and are only very slightly varied in diction. So the publication of the whole four appears unnecessary. It is intelligible that repetitions should be found in, in the sacred books of several religions. For the teachings of their prophets were orally addressed to crowds who clustered around them, and repetitions served to impress on the listeners the instruction accorded. But in a printed work, which the reader may peruse and re-peruse at pleasure, repetition does not appear so necessary. Moreover, this work is intended for the European as well as for the Sikh student. It is apprehended that repetition would prove tedious and deter several, even conscientious readers, from its perusal. I find, however, that it is impossible for me to meet the wishes of all parties. Europeans will probably think my work too long, and Sikhs may possibly think it too short. As to the latter objection, I may state that I have followed the advice of the most learned Sikh scholars. They have decided that there is no omission of anything necessary to faith or morals, but that the whole substance of the Sikh sacred writings is here presented, and that if any Sikh shapes his conduct accordingly, he will be in no danger of falling to secure absorption in the Creator or a dwelling in the Creator's heaven. A few of the advantages of the Sikh religion to the state may be here enumerated. One day, as Guru Teg Bahadur was in the top story of his prison, the Emperor Aurangzeb thought he saw him looking towards the south in the direction of the imperial Zanana. He was sent for the next day and charged with this grave breach of oriental etiquette and propriety. The Guru replied, Emperor Aurangzeb, I was on the top story of my prison, but I was not looking at thy private apartments or at thy queens. I was looking in the direction of the Europeans who are coming from beyond the seas to tear down thy pardas and destroy thine empire. Sikh writers state that these words became the battle cry of the Sikhs in the assault on the mutineers in Delhi, Delhi in 1857 under General John Nicholson and that thus the prophecy of the ninth Guru was gloriously fulfilled. When it was represented to Guru Gobind Singh that a Mohammedan army would eventually come to overpower his Sikhs, he replied, What God willeth shall take place. When the army of the Mohammedans cometh, my Sikhs shall strike steel on steel. The Khalsa shall awake and know the play of battle. Amid the clash of arms, the Khalsa shall be partners in present and future bliss. Tranquility, meditation, and divine knowledge. Then shall the English come, and joined by the Khalsa, rule as well in the East as in the West.
The holy Baba Nanak will bestow all wealth on them. The English shall possess great power and by force of arms take possession of many principalities. The combined armies of the English and the Sikhs shall be very powerful as long as they rule with united councils. The empire of the British shall vastly increase and they shall in every way obtain prosperity. Wherever they take their armies they shall conquer and bestow thrones on their vassals. Then in every house shall be wealth, in every house religion, in every house learning and in every house happiness. It is such prophecies as these combined with the monotheism, the absence of superstition and restraint in the matter of food which have made the Sikhs among the bravest, the most loyal and devoted subjects of the British crown. As to their bravery and loyalty, the following written by one of them is by no means an exaggeration. As for the bravery and warlike spirit of the Sikhs, no Cossack, no Turk, no Russian can measure swords with them. There is one trait very peculiar in them, such as must make the enemies of the British fear them. The true blood of loyalty and devotion to their master surges in their veins. A true Sikh will let his body be cut to pieces when fighting for his master. The Sikh considers dying in battle a means of salvation. No superiority of the enemies in number, no shot, no shell can make his heart quail, since his Amrit, baptism, binds him to fight, single-handed against millions. Some people may say that a soldier sells his head for the small wage paid him every month, but the Sikh does not do so. He devotes his head, body and everything dear to him to preserving the influence of him whom he once makes his master. A Sikh who shows the least sign of reluctance to go or goes with an expectation of remuneration when called upon by his benefactor, the King Emperor, to fight his majesty's enemies, no matter how strong they may be, will be condemned by the Gurus. If there is one superstition more strongly reprobated than any other in the Sikh sacred writings, it is pilgrimages to the places deemed sacred by the Hindus. Some of the Sikh states, in ignorance of the teachings of the Gurus, have maintained temples and spiritual arenas at Hardwar and Rishikesh for the reception of pilgrims. At Hardwar there are held great religious fairs every twelve years at the time when the sun enters the lunar mansion of Aquarius, Kumb. It is calculated that at least 100,000 Sikhs were present at the last great fair at Hardwar. All these pilgrims bathe in the Ganges. While bathing, many recklessly yield to the necessities of nature. Others drink their excreta with the Ganges water as sacred nourishment and die of cholera, either at the fair or on their homeward journey. The corpses of Sikhs, as well as Hindus, were pulled out of railway carriages after the last 
Twelfth Year Fair and poisoned the country. The pest then extended east and west in all directions. Kabul, of course, on the western boundary of India, was soon affected, and the further progress of the disease towards Europe was thus described by the Paris correspondent of the Morning Post. Professor Chantimes, Director General of the Public Health Department, made a somewhat disquieting statement to today's meeting of the Academy of Medicine. He pointed out that the cholera epidemic, which originated in India, has spread east and west, had established itself last autumn in four European centres, namely Trans-Caspia, Trans-Caucasia, Anatolia and the banks of the Volga between Astrakhan, Saratov and Samara. As the winter cold had merely checked the disease, instead of stamping it out, there was every reason to fear it would continue its progress westward, by way of the Baltic ports, the Black Sea, the Danube, or Constantinople. According to another account, 7,000 deaths from cholera occurred in the Punjab since the second week of April. The disease was originally disseminated by the returning pilgrims from Hardwar. Of course, there were also many Hindu pilgrims at the Hardwar fair. But let anyone consider what a gain it would be to the world if the 100,000 Sikhs who attended it possessed such a very elementary knowledge of their religion as to know that their action was reprobated by all their holy gurus. It is known to every Sikh that tobacco is forbidden by his religion, but it is not generally known that wine is equally forbidden. After I had quoted the Sikh tenets on this subject in public lectures at Simla, it was taken up by the enlightened Singh Sabha of Patiala, and a resolution in favour of total abstinence was signed by several of the best educated and most influential sardars of the state. The freedom of women and their emancipation from the tyranny of the parda may be inferred from the manner in which Bhai Buddha received Mata Ganga, the wife of Guru Arjan, from Guru Amar Das's refusal to receive a Rani who had visited him when she was closely veiled, and from Gabi's address to his daughter-in-law. The high moral and enlightened teachings of the Gurus, their prohibition of the heinous crime of infanticide, and other injunctions for the public advantage will be found or understood from the composition of the Gurus and the Bhagats, which we give in these volumes. The Hindu practice of the concremation of widows was forbidden by the Gurus. Though this was not generally known at the time of Lord William Bentinck, who had sufficient courage to issue an ordinance against it. The Gurus most powerfully and successfully attacked the caste system and the Hindu belief in impurity and defilement in many necessary and harmless acts of domestic life. 
it is admitted that a knowledge of the religions of the people of india is a desideratum for the british officials who administer its affairs and indirectly for the people who are governed by them so that mutual sympathy may be produced it seems at any rate politic to place before the sikh soldiery their guru's prophecies in favour of the english and the texts of their sacred writings which foster their loyalty an advantage of a literary or historical nature is also anticipated from this work it is hoped that it will throw some light on the state of society in the middle ages and that it will also be useful for the student of comparative theology professor geheimer hofrath merks of the heidelberg university a very distinguished german savant has recently written to me the publication of your work is certainly very desirable you save in this way materials for the history of religions which without your help would probably disappear to sum up some of the moral and political merits of the sikh religion it prohibits idolatry hypocrisy caste exclusiveness the cremation of widows the immurement of women the use of wine and other intoxicants tobacco smoking infanticide slander pilgrimages to the sacred rivers and tanks of the hindus and it inculcates loyalty gratitude for all favors received philanthropy justice impartiality truth honesty and all the moral and domestic virtues known to the holiest citizens of any country a movement to declare the sikhs hindus in direct opposition to the teachings of the gurus is widespread and of long duration i have only quite recently met in lahore young men claiming to be descendants of the gurus who told me that they were hindus and that they could not read the characters in which the sacred books of the sikhs were written whether the object of their tutors and advisers was or was not to make them disloyal such youths are ignorant of the sikh religion and of its prophecies in favour of the english and contract exclusive social customs and prejudices to the extent of calling us malechas or persons of impure desires and inspiring disgust for the customs and habits of christians and here let me remark that the recognition of punjabi is an official or optimal official language in the punjab instead of the alien urdu would be a most powerful means of preserving the sikh religion punjabi is the mother tongue of all natives of the punjab be they sikhs hindus or mohammedans if it were recognized as an official or optional official language sikhs would not have to resort to books written in foreign languages for religious instruction and consolation and the exalted ethical instruction of the granth sahib would be open to all classes 
of His Majesty's subjects in the Punjab. After the English occupation of the Punjab, the officers sent to administer it were transferred from what were no then known as the northwestern provinces. They took with them Urdu, or what was much the same, a bastard Persian with Urdu inflections, the only Asiatic language they knew, and they found it more convenient to continue to use it than to learn a foreign language which had at the time no status and no literature. The vernacular writers and the officers who brought them were equally ignorant of Punjabi, and so Urdu became the official language of that province. That the officials did not understand the natives, nor the natives the officials, made no difference. The court officials gradually picked up a smattering of Punjabi and were able to interpret for the Europeans. This state of things was allowed to continue. If the Punjabis remonstrated against neglect of their language, their remonstrances were unheeded. Now the Punjab has become more enlightened. The remonstrances have grown louder and it remains to be seen whether any lieutenant governor will take the trouble or have the courage to make Punjabi an alternative language for the Punjab and thus confer a lasting favour not only on the Sikhs but on all the natives of the land of the five rivers whose medium of communication it is from their birth. At any rate there appears nothing to hinder the native states of the Punjab from making Punjabi their official language. End of preface, part B.